Let's travel back in time to a week before the Passover when Jesus died. The disciples find a donkey outside Jerusalem. They bring the donkey to him. He rides into town. The cloaks down on the ground, palm branches. Hosanna. Here's the son of David. Matthew 21, 8 through 11. Tell us a bit of the story here. The disciples, a large crowd gathered, spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So here's the son of David. Then the next thing that happens, he goes into the temple and picture this. This is not our usual picture of Jesus meek and mild. He goes into the temple. He is spilling tables, knocking over tables of money. Benches are flying. Jesus is shouting, this is a place of prayer. (laughs) Imagine the Jerusalem bloggers that night. Spreads through the city. Then verse 14, or 15. When the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Well, yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you've ordained praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. So these spiritual children have the right response, but the leaders don't like it. A few verses later, they finally confront him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? What do you think? Whose authority? So Jesus tells two parables to answer the question. The first parable is the parable of the two sons. And one says he'll obey, but then he goes on and doesn't. The other says he won't obey, but then he actually changes his mind and obeys and The point being that sinners will enter heaven before religious people who resist God. But then the second parable, even more pointed, he tells a parable about leadership. And the point is that God is taking the leadership of the kingdom of God from the Jewish priesthood and giving it to those who will give God the fruit he desires. Then he quotes Psalm 118. Look at verse 42 in Matthew 21. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scripture the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Let's pray. Lord, help us to hear your heart in this radical time in your life when conflict is increasing. Help us to have a right heart, hearts toward you, the King. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name that you would open us, that we could receive your full rule in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Jesus in these passages is revealed as the king. But what does King Jesus do? Well, the first one's the hard one. The first thing King Jesus does is break us. 
43 or 42. The stone the builders reject has become the capstone. They've rejected that stone. And then he says in verse 44, he who falls on the stone will be broken, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. And here's really the two choices of humanity. They reject the messianic capstone. He's the Messiah. So the current Jewish leaders are going to be set aside for this new leadership that will turn out to be combined of Jews and Gentiles who trust in the Messiah. Jesus, as the capstone, is the decisive person in history. He ultimately changes every single person who's ever lived. He is God and he is man, and we have two choices. Fall on him, asking his mercy and be broken. Or he falls on us and we are crushed. The point is clear that none of us, no one in humanity is perfect. We all need transformation. When we voluntarily fall on him in faith and repentance, we are broken. What does he mean? Our, our, our thoughts and our ways, our goals are transformed. I thought I knew where I was heading. When I became a Christian, and it wasn't a bad plan, but it wasn't God's plan. And so my ideas, even about life, were broken. And our willfulness is broken. Our lusts and our addictions must be broken. And we must reach, welcome God's breaking of those, those uh, more negative things. But even our desires for ministry are broken. Some of you have experienced that. You, you step out and you think, okay, I know God's will. Yeah, I'm going to try this. And it doesn't work. Why? Because even our good desires have to be broken so that we learn humility and dependence on him. If we won't be broken, if we insist on our will, we're headed for a confrontation with the biggest boulder you've ever met. If we insist on resentment as a lifestyle, we're crushed by his love. If we cling to addictions, it consumes us. If we put ourselves at the center, we simply are not the center and another gets all the worship. So the point is, as the capstone of humanity, 100% God, 100% man, he changes us forever. Look, no one gets out of this life unchanged. No one remains the same. We're, all, we're, we're dependent beings. We see that, right? We can't make ourselves live forever. Your choice today, surrender your life to Christ. Let him break you rather than be crushed in eternity. And if this is a new idea for you, a new step for you, the very simple way to express it, three words, sorry, thank you, and please. We come to a point where we realize we're sorry, even if we don't have some big sins. Maybe you're a good kid and the worst thing you ever did was steal cookies from a cookie jar. But, but sorry for living with my self-will at the center of my life. Thank you, second word, thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. And then please, Lord, please make me not just a nicer person, not just a little bit better person, but make me the person you designed me to be. Fall on the rock and be broken. Don't just believe, but surrender to Christ. So the first thing King Jesus does is break us. There's another thing King Jesus does. The second thing King Jesus does is call us to prayer. Now, I skipped these verses, but look at in chapter 21, 
verses 12 and 13. As Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all that were buying and selling there, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. He's incensed and there's a little background here. My house will be a house of prayer. Uh, Mark adds, for all nations. I'll read to you very briefly, Second Chronicles 6.32. Solomon is dedicating the temple, and he has all kinds of prayers. He prays that God will answer over the years. But he has one specific prayer for the Gentile, the foreigner, the person that's not Jewish. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays to this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house that I've built bears your name. And so there was a spot in the temple, the court of the Gentiles, that was dedicated so that even those that were not Jewish, they didn't worship the God of Israel, but they, would, they could come and they could stand in that place reverently, raise their hands to heaven and pray. And Solomon said, Lord, would you answer their prayer so they know you're real? That's where they were selling and buying and trading. They stole the place for the Gentile to come and experience God. And Jesus is incensed. My house will be a house of prayer. I love to share the word of God. It's great to read your Bible. But the most fundamental reality of the spiritual life before heaven is that it is a life of prayer. We live by prayer. Now, genuine prayer is marked first of all by peace and then secondly by yearning. Have you discovered this yet? First, peace. Give up prayer as legalism or prayer as ritual or prayer as obligation and enter into prayer as relationship with God. Prayer is the artless conviction that when I speak to God, he hears. And when I begin to experience that, I've begun a relationship. And this is the most beautiful thing. It's our, it's our life, and it's really the primary source of our joy. As we go through life, there's relationships, and there's achievement, and there's learning. And, but, the, but the deepest reality is to know that I'm in relationship with God. Wow. Thank you, Lord. The peace that surpasses understanding. And, and once you've established prayer as peace and not as some obligation or driven thing, then develop eternity-focused prayer. Yearning, yearning for those who do not yet know God, yearning for the spiritual maturity of those around you. Enter into the birth pangs of the Holy Spirit for the coming creation. Let me give you just a little sample of this. What is prayer? Paul says in Romans 8, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that first taste of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're longing, we, you know, temptation, yuck, I don't want it anymore, and illness and COVID, I don't want it anymore. Lord, we long for the coming kingdom. In the same way, 
The Spirit himself helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And so there's a place of prayer. Once you're, once you're through being tempted to legalism or obligation, like all those weighty things, and you're enjoying your relationship with God, begin to enter into the yearning of the Holy Spirit for the new creation. And you're going to experience his house as a house of prayer. So the second thing king, the king does is call us to prayer. One last thing King Jesus does. The third thing King Jesus does is heal us. Now this is interesting. The first thing he does is break us, but then he heals us. Look at Matthew 21, verse five. It's actually the beginning of the story of Palm Sunday. And Matthew explains, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, if you know the Bible, you think, well, yeah, I know that verse. But if you know kings, you think, what is going on? Right? This is not, you know, Arthur on his horse or Aragon in uh, the Lord of the Rings on a mighty steed, a stallion. The point is that this king is a different kind of king. He comes on a colt, not a war horse, because he is gentle. There's a little word study here that's worth going into for just a moment. The word is praus in Greek. It's used only three times in Matthew, very deliberately. It can be translated humble, meek, or gentle. So here's, of course, describing Jesus and the kind of king that he is. In Matthew 5, 4, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. He's describing what his disciples are like, people who follow him. And then in a crucial passage, understanding what kind of king Jesus is, we'll look at Matthew 11, the end of the chapter, Familiar passage, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, or I might say meek, that's that same word, gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So here's the question. This is our king described in these verses. What does our king do with his authority? Yell at us? Put demands on us? We wouldn't say that, but for some of us, that's our view of God. Verse 28, come to me all you who are burdened. Uh, well, actually, the word is toil and heavily burdened. You're toiling. Many are weary and burdened in these days. <laughs> it's kind of ironic. You know, some people I talk to, and because of COVID, they've got hardly any work, and so they're sitting around worrying, maybe. Others, maybe a little more for me, <laughs> COVID's making more work, right? And it's, uh, uh, but he says, come to me, all you who labor and are burdened, and I will give you rest. So here's a real test of the spiritual life. There's a lot of Christians 
and we do a lot of things. But are we really coming to Jesus? He says, come to me, you who are laboring and burdened, and I will give you rest. So if we're coming to Jesus, we are going to find rest for our souls. If we're coming to an imaginary God who's got all these obligations and expectations we can never measure up to, we're probably not feeling much rest. (laughs) How do we find rest? He says, take my yoke upon you. So kind of like Tevye in Fiddle on the Roof. And you got to get this little yoke on you. And you got to, you know, you do have to, you can't just do nothing, right? You got to get that yoke on and it's got to be his yoke. But then what does he say? Learn from me. Oh, so I'm going to have to unlearn some thoughts, maybe some misbeliefs. I'm going to have to unlearn some human-centered beliefs and attitudes. Learn from me. For, and here's what he says, I am gentle and humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. You know, some of us do not know a gentle and humble Jesus. We just have not met that Jesus yet. But that's who he is. There's layers of religiosity preventing us from meeting Jesus. So it's a yoke. You got to obey. And you got to learn his ways. The gentle, humble voice is the voice of God. Gentle, the prose here again, meek, not crazy demanding. Here's a spiritual discernment point. Driven thoughts are never Jesus. You'll get conviction. He'll tell you, don't do that. That's wrong, right? You'll you'll sense, sense that in your spirit. But driven thought, things like, boy, if you don't do this, that person's gonna go to hell. That's not how Jesus speaks. And the end point is rest for your soul. Now, this is especially relevant for the spiritually over-responsible types, those who grew up in unhealthy families or addictions and abuse, the tendency is to become super performers. And Jesus, actually another translation that I like, he says, my yoke is comforting and my burden is insubstantial. My, My yoke is comforting and my burden is insubstantial. So here's my question for you. Whose yoke are you wearing? One from Jesus? Or one filled with soul expectations based on my background or my pride or whatever? I'll tell you, I know which yoke I want. Take his yoke, learn his ways, and find healing of soul. Because the third thing King Jesus does is heal us. So Jesus is the king who, he breaks us, he does. Of our self-sufficiency and our imagined ability. He calls us to prayer and then he heals us. As you contemplate the person of Jesus today, will you welcome him and honor him as king in your life? Will you bow before him as king? Give yourself to him as a servant and entrust yourself to him as a son or daughter taking his yoke. Pray with me a moment. Lord Jesus, we surrender all of who we are and all of what we have to you. And Father, we don't want to be crushed. We're willing to be broken. Break the habits that 
don't please you and reduce our effectiveness. Break off the heavy expectations some of us have. The burdens and the toiling. Heal the soul. We offer ourselves to you. We close with the words of Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is comforting, and my burden is insubstantial. Amen.